0: Hi and welcome to episode 7 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. This week I'm having a chat with Warbird pilot and jet air racer Craig Wilco Wilcoxon. We talk about the long list of amazing aircraft he has flown, his day job as an avionics technician with the RAAF, as well as what it's like racing an aircraft 50 feet off the ground at 500 miles an hour. Pretty insane. This week Up and Away has ticked over 2,000 downloads, so once again, thanks so much for the support. The goal of the podcast is to share these unique Australian aviation stories with the world, so tell as many people as possible about it and help spread the word. Now fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hey Wilco, welcome to Up and Away.
1: G'day, how are you going?
0: Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. It's good. So, I thought I would start by asking you, when did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation?
1: So, I started back in 1989 um, and when I left
0: school, I really didn't know what I wanted to
1: do. Uh, I knew that I wanted to know how to fly an airplane. So, uh, in 89, my parents were, um, uh, well, I'm grateful for my parents that they uh, took me down and did a trial introductory flight and um, it went from there. So, I've been flying for 30 years now.
0: Yeah, what kind of first triggered that sort of desire to do it? Was there something, like a lot of people said uh, it's like a Top Gun or something? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I guess Top Gun was a lot of inspira- inspiration for a lot of people. Yeah. But um, no, my, my dad was in the Air Force many years ago and he used to take me to the base and um, you know, I used to see him around the aeroplanes and that sort of thing over in Perth and uh, he used to work on Mirage's, Mackie's and Iroquois helicopters. So it was just pretty much hanging around that and I thought that's, that's what I wanted to do when I left school. Um, so uh, that's when I started flying Cool. so it got me into it
0: what were you working towards to begin with Uh, what ratings and what uh, licenses and stuff
1: Um, it's kind of like a hobby out of control or a session out of control so I started with just wanting to fly an airplane learning how to do that and then once I achieved that I thought well now I could do the next license back then it was called the restricted and then unrestricted Um, and unrestricted meant I could take a plane anywhere I wanted to go but I couldn't work for a company with an unrestricted license so I then got my unrestricted uh, so I could fly further afield than just the airport, Um, and then I thought, well, I want to be able to turn this thing upside down, so then I went and got an aerobatics rating uh, as well and did all this in 1989. Um, And then from there, the next licence back then was your commercial, and um, that's where I wanted to go, but I needed some more more money behind me before I could achieve that. So in the meantime, I just um, basically punched holes in the sky and took friends up and did aerobatic flights with them.
0: Wow. So you literally did turn it upside down. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Upside down, spun it, did all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what were you doing as a job at the time, the funds, all of that?
1: Uh, at the time I was a storeman of all things. Uh, and then from there I worked as a, um, I did that for a couple of years and I worked as a car detailer for a company called Auto Classic in Perth on uh, BMWs. And it was pretty much just funded, funded uh, my flying. That's all I put the money towards. And then, um, in ninety three my life changed for the past 27 years yeah right that's when I uh, joined the Air Force.
0: Yeah wow. so what are you doing at the Air Force at the moment?
1: So I, I, I'm an avionics technician so I, um, which people say to me why didn't I join as a pilot? Uh, so the, the real reason is when I started flying it's it's cool to be able to fly an aeroplane and throw it upside down in aerobatics and everything but my goal was never to be a pilot because I realized pretty quickly for myself that I didn't want to fly. Uh, full-time or have a job full-time. Otherwise, it would burn the passion out for me. So um, I just got my commercial in '95. joined the Air Force in '93, and I still maintain my commercial. Uh, and, and my main goal once I joined the Air Force and realized I was getting paid more was to end up flying Warbird aircraft. So I was working towards um, saving enough money to just get myself into Warbirds.
0: So when you decided to do your CPL, you didn't really have a job in mind?
1: Not really other than um i had been told that to fly warbird aircraft it may, at the time um to fly warbird aircraft and take people up you have to have a commercial license and that's still the that's still the way it is today so i thought well to get into these things um to make myself employable i'm going to need to have a commercial so i got the commercial uh in 95 uh and then um pretty much started flying warbirds in 2004
0: did you have a sort of challenge that you found was pretty hard in the learning process at the time? Uh,
1: um, it, the challenge was actually to get into the Warbirds. So um, you, you pretty much need to know uh, someone with the, with the aircraft um, because they're pretty expensive things. You know, they pay a lot for the aircraft, they pay a lot in insurance and they don't want anybody just flying these things. So to get into Warbirds, you need to, um, you need to make yourself employable or sellable so you need to have uh, endorsements and ratings and different types of aircraft if you can get them. Um, you need to have, you know, like intrap- uh, retractable undercarriage, uh, variable pitch prop, um, aerobatics ratings, uh, and that sort of thing to make yourself, you know, attractive to someone who you said, you know, wants to take you on to fly their aircraft. And uh, like I said before, you have to have a commercial to be able to take people up on joy So it was all these boxes I needed to tick before I could sell myself.
0: Yeah, right. It Seems like a pretty intense kind of thing to try and get into. Yeah,
1: it is, and it can be, um, and it and it can be quite expensive as well to get there. But you know, once you're there, uh, it's pretty rewarding as well to to finally achieve, you know your dream, your goal.
0: Totally. I can't imagine there's a lot of people flying these things either.
1: Um, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I don't know how many people are flying. And you know, we do have some warbirds in Australia. We've got a, quite a big fleet of warbirds in Australia. Um, but we're always uh, in the industry. We're always looking for um, junior pilots to come through to, to fly these things as well because, you know, we're not getting any younger. <laughs> so, um, and to keep these things flying, we're going to need some, uh, some new guys coming through.
0: Uh, do you have to sort of learn the particularities of each one and sort of like the peculiarities of each one and sort of, yeah, like get a rating in a particular aircraft?
1: Yes, yes and no. So when you, um, to make yourself, uh, like I said, attractable to a, to a potential um, employer, um, most warbirds have retractable undercarriage and and variable pitch prop, so CSU, constant speed un- units. To get those um, on your licence, you can do that in a Cessna, you know, 18, 182s or 172RG, that sort of things. So once you've got that, you've got that. But once you get into the warbirds, they fly, uh, generally fly a little bit faster, some of the warbirds. Um, they're... Uh, idiosyncrasies all of them have their own little special ways of doing things so I started in the Nangchang CJ6 Nangchang and um, very nice aeroplane very stable aeroplane um, great for uh, taking people on jaw rides um, and and it's aerobatic after that I went on the Yak-52 now the Yak-52 and the Nangchang are very similar very almost the same aircraft except the Yak's designed for unlimited aerobatics um, all of the gyroscopic maneuvers the wings just a dead flat plank um, and it has big control services so um, the aerobatics you can do in a yak are much tighter uh, and much more aggressive than what you can do in a nangchang. so it's just one of those little things that are uh, little tricks that can that can trick you up
0: yeah i mean it's sort of got to be all over those different sort of aspects i suppose
1: yeah, exactly. So if you're doing a roll in a Nangchang, you know you might put the stick to you know point X, but if you do it in a Yak and you put the stick to the same position as what you do in a Nangchang, it's going to happen much more aggressively and much more quicker because it's designed for that.
0: So what kind of aircraft have you flown so far? Uh, so um, Nangchang,
1: Yak, uh, T6 Texan, T28 Trojan, um, uh, Chipmunk, and um, I'm also I also have three jet ratings as well. So the S211 Miketti. Um, which the Singaporean Air Force used to use at Pierce, and before, and um, they used to use them before they sold them off. The L29 Delphin and the L39 Albatross, I fly those as well.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, what's flying a jet like compared to a piston aircraft?
1: Um, to be honest, a lot of people ask me that, and, and I'm going to uh, honestly say it's easier. Flying a jet is a lot easier than flying a piston aeroplane. So, for instance, if um, there's com- comparing the Albatross El- to the T28 Trojan. You know, you need three hands to start the T twenty eight. And then once you're flying, you've then got to you know, you've got mixture lever, pitch lever, and your thrust lever. And you know, whether you're climbing, descending, aerobatics, or transiting just level, they all have different uh, manifold pressures and um, and RPMs, you've got to set that with your what stage of flight you're doing. With the jet, you've got one lever one and that's your thrust lever. You push it forward to go faster, pull it back to go slower. Having said that, the only thing with the jet is you need to think quicker as well. So if something was to go wrong, things happen quicker. So you're covering the ground a lot faster as well. So um, that's they're a lot easier to fly around the sky. you just got to think ahead of the aircraft so it doesn't catch you out.
0: You reckon the speed seems terrifying to me? <laughs>
1: um, yes and no. You know, you do get used to it. So um, to start flying the Nang Chang, you yeah, know, that's generally what they say about 130 knot aircraft. But your 172 sits around 110 182s, you know you might be up around about 120 so getting into a nang chang is kind of like an entry level kind of warbird aircraft um so it's only another 10 knots going from a nang chang to a t-28 you're looking at probably about 180 knots 188 knots maybe in the cruise then going from the t-28 to the l-39 for instance you're probably sitting up around about 240 knots 250 knots in the cruise so um i like to i like to sit on the with the uh l-39 i like to cruise around it you know, 240 knots because I know that's four miles a minute so I can plan ahead of the aircraft, you know, where I'm going to be in four minutes' time. So um when you're training, they will teach you things so that you don't get caught behind or you don't get caught out or the jet's not, you know, now half a mile down down track from where you're still thinking, if you know what I mean. So
0: Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, that's probably the hardest part about flying jets to get your head around when you first start.
0: Yeah, I guess it's like, oh, so generally at this point you should be thinking about this. So when you get in that situation, you know, yeah. That's the next thing you should be thinking about.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So, otherwise, so that's why the jet won't get ahead of you. Yeah. You'll be ahead of the jet. Um, So, hopefully, nothing will catch you off guard. Or you know how to deal with it if, if something does.
0: Still kind of scary though. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, it can be, especially when your instructor pulls the power off on you and, <laughs> and he doesn't tell you you're about to do an emergency.
0: <laughs> so yeah, and something like that when you say practice an engine failure or something, how does it act in terms of like glide and stuff? Is it similar to a piston?
1: Uh, yes, yes, and no. So um, some aircraft are, some aircraft aren't. So what the the Nanchang, I can't remember the glide ratio, but it, it'll glide pretty well. The T twenty eight is probably like pushing a Coke machine off the roof of a building. So with that, <laughs> if that, if your engine fails in that, you have to look directly down to the ground to find a spot to put it down. It, it it's such a blunt aircraft that it doesn't have a good glide ratio.
0: I've always thought they looked like that too. Actually, looking at them, I'm like, like yeah. they kind of look like they shouldn't be in the air. They're kind of stumpy or something. And
1: yeah, they are very stocky and stumpy. You're right. Yeah. Um, so they're very blunt. So there's a lot of they're very what they're called what we call draggy. So there's a lot of drag. Um, so if the engine stops, then you need to look straight down. With the jets, the L39 is pretty. Uh, it's pretty good. It'll glide for quite a while. But the best jet that I've flown um, would be the Macchi. Um, you you, know, you could be you know, 10,000 feet and and probably travel on the ground about you know 30 miles. It's um, 30 or 40 miles. It's just glide ratio is phenomenal. But um, the Miketti is a good aircraft it's like a 172 with a jet engine so you can do whatever you like in your airplane and it won't it won't bite because um, it was designed for training uh whereas the l39 was designed as a, a trainer but also as a lead-in fighter to the bigger aircraft like the Sukhois and the migs so um you have to fly the l39 inside the design envelope if you try to do something funky with it so if you do a break over an airfield and pull too tight it'll flip you over uh, and it can end disastrously. So you have to fly it within the envelope. Otherwise, it can be quite uh, bad for you. But McKetty, very docile aeroplane.
0: Yeah, I don't think I'm familiar with the McKetty, actually.
1: It's um, The s 11 McKetty was originally built by a company called SIAI and they were taken over by Leonardo. Now they've built new ones. They've made them a bit bigger and they're called the um, 345, I think it is. Uh, Aeromackie three four five something like that. It's a high wing aircraft, tricycle undercarriage. Imagine a hawk, like a, an Air Force hawk, yeah. but with the wing the wing being on top of the fuselage, not on the bottom.
0: Yeah, right. I think I, I think I've seen them. Yeah, um, I'm just trying to trying to imagine. But um, I think some people also may not be super familiar with some of the the jets, like the L thirty nine as well. How how would you describe that?
1: So the L thirty uh, nine single engine jet. Um, it has a tandem seating, one uh, pilot in the front and generally instructor in the back <clears throat> is what it was designed for. But, you know, we take people up on jaw rides, uh, that sort of thing. So low, low wing, uh, the intakes are up high, like a Skyhawk kind of thing. The intakes are behind the leading edge above the wing. So um, the aircraft was originally designed by Aero Vodocity with Russian influences. And because the airfields over in that part of the world aren't so great, they have um, long undercarriage legs. Um, and they're very strong, uh, and the intakes are higher, so the aircraft doesn't suck any rocks or um, foreign object debris up into the intake into the engine. Yeah, right.
0: that's interesting. Yeah, kind of durable.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're they're rock solid. Really rock solid airplane. Throw them around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can.
0: <laughs> so, what's your favourite aircraft to fly?
1: I'd, I'd say the L thirty nine. So it depends if it's if it's piston airplane, I'd probably say the T twenty eight. It's just so big. and Yeah, you know, such big aircraft it's brutish it's got a lot of power and um they're good fun to fly they're nice and light in the sky too they look like a like a flying tank and heavy but they're not they're really docile once you get them off the ground they're really nice to fly uh as for the jets l39 l39s it's a sporting looking aircraft it's a fast aircraft um for what it is for a trainer um yeah it's just a great airplane all around
0: yeah they do look pretty awesome i've always liked the look of those
1: yeah and they've got those tip tanks um, that just look like you know, look like bombs or weapons hanging out in the wings. So yeah. it looks they're, they're a really cool machine. So when you're
0: flying over your mate's house, they're getting worried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has there ever been an aircraft that you've always wanted to fly that you haven't had a chance to fly yet?
1: Um, haven't had a chance to fly yet? Gee, that's a good question. Probably the AV-10 Bronco. I've always wanted to fly a Bronco. And that's, um, they use those in Vietnam as counterinsurgency or forward air control. Uh, the high-wing twin-engine turbine uh, aircraft um ever since i saw one of those just because it was different i always wanted to fly one of those um but we don't have them in australia and there's not that many flying in the world anymore so unfortunately no apart from that you know everyone wants to fly a spitfire but to me a corsair f4u corsair from world oh, war 2
0: so cool hey the corsair yeah yeah there's something about the wing shape and everything that just looks super cool
1: that gull shaped wing, yeah,
0: yeah. Didn't they do that so the landing gear wouldn't be as long or something? It was like a real pragmatic sort of like design thing.
1: Yeah, they did. So what happened was they had to put the um, the biggest engine they could find in the smallest possible body uh, to so it could get uh, a lot of speed. So the way they did that um, was build a small body uh, and the wings were originally straight when they on the on the drawing board that was, but they didn't want the undercarriage to to fold up outwards like the Spitfire because that's where the wing. Uh, had to fold up for the aircraft carrier and they didn't have enough room to fold them inwards because that's where they wanted the weapons. So uh, how are we going to do this? So they made the wings fold backwards, but then they realised that, uh, sorry, the wheels fold backwards. But because the engine's so big, the propeller is huge. It's a 13, I think it's 13 or 13 and a half foot propeller. So as your tail comes up on takeoff with an undercarriage leg only X long, the actual blade hits the ground. All right, so how are we going to extend the undercarriage without extending the undercarriage, if you know what I mean, because the wheels are going to fold backwards. So what they did was they cantered the wing down, and at that point where the wing goes from going down, bend to going up, they put the wheels right on that point there, uh, which gave them enough room for the tail to come up and it made the nose higher. So the prop wouldn't hit the ground.
0: It's pretty cool. I think it's an an extra foot or foot and a half larger than the diameter of a Spitfire prop as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, they are. They're they're a massive, they're a, you know, you tell me what, the, um, I think the P3 Orion has a 13 foot prop and the Corsair has a 13 and a half foot prop yeah, all the other way around, but it's very close to the same size as the P3 Orion prop.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. insane. <laughs> it's huge. And yeah, they're landing these things on aircraft carriers and
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, the uh, Americans really gave them to the Marines at the start and they didn't they just put them on the land um, and they had a number of accidents on carriers, so they stopped flying them off carriers. But the British actually were the first people to land them on the carriers and then they taught the Americans and the American Navy continued on.
0: Yeah, wow. that's super cool. I think everyone should uh, have a look, start Googling these. <laughs> if you don't know what they're like. <laughs> if you don't have experience with warbird aircraft, start looking up some of these models. They're very cool. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so safety gear and something like the L-39, uh, do you need a helmet? Do you have an ejector seat? What have you got?
1: Um, we do wear helmets in the L-39. Some people um, will just wear a headset. Some people don't wear helmets. Um, but we do wear helmets. Uh, the, we, do have, we don't have, we do have ejection seats. So the seats in them, the original seats are in them, but the crackers have been removed. To keep that um, live and with all the life thing you need to do on the um, explosives, it's just prohibitively expensive. And to find someone who's qualified on, you know, Russian ejection seats or you know, <laughs> um, Czechoslovakian ejection seats, uh, and to get the parts out of there, just to, it's just you can't do it. It's impossible. So none of the seats are live in Australia. All the crackers have been removed. But what we do have is parachutes. So the parachute, instead of being parachute on the seat, that the old original seat, as it would eject from the aircraft, the parachute would come out. What we do is we wear a parachute, but the parap- parachute's locked into the seat. So we don't have any seat belts in the aircraft what you put on is actually the parachute harness and that's locked into the seat. All right. So we have that. We wear flight suits because they're fire-retardant. Um, flight suits, gloves because, again, they're fire-retardant and uh, helmets. Um, we don't. I don't know of any L39s in Australia that has the oxygen system functional. Um, so we just have a mic boom on our helmet. But I know some, some people in America have their oxygen systems functional and they wear oxygen masks.
0: And so that limits you to... Fifteen thousand feet or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's around that. So we, we we don't really need to go that high from when, unless we're transiting somewhere, we might go to about thirteen, maybe. But we don't need to go that high. Um, we also in Australia, I don't know of anyone that wears G suits in an L thirty nine because the um, there's a different adapter between a NATO style G suit and the Russian adapter. Actually, in the seat, um, you'd you have to get a uh, get a, a little uh, adapter made for it to work. But a G-suit really, a G-suit will only G, uh, decrease your G by 1.5. So, you know, if you're taking passengers up who aren't used to flying, you might only do 4.5 Gs, and that might be enough for them, or 4 Gs even, that might be enough for them. So, you know, when you're sitting up around 5, 6 uh, 6 Gs, um, it's not sustained either. So it's on and then off. It's not like an F-16 that can do 360-degree turn at 9 Gs. No, we can turn We can turn tight, but we can't sustain that. We don't have an excess amount of thrust to be able to sustain that tight turn. So it's on, and it might be on for a couple of seconds, and then it will be off again.
0: Yeah, it's still manageable.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you might uh, instantaneously go from uh, go from one, you might peak out at four and a half, and then uh, that G will start to wind back. You might go four and a half, four, 3.53, you know, start to come back. So it, it is manageable. It's, it's very manageable.
0: What's some manoeuvres you do when you get passengers up to freak them out?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I try not to freak any of them out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but mainly aileron roll, barrel roll, uh, four-point roll, a hesitation roll, um, dairy turns. So um, we turn left by rolling right So or turn right by uh, roll rolling left and that's where you roll 270 degrees of the turn and then oh, you yeah. stop and then you pull back and the airplane will go the other way. Um Vertical rolls, so getting up to 350 knots, pulling straight up, and then rolling, going going straight up. Uh, loops, uh, Cuban eights, half cubans, all those sorts of things. So the things we don't do in the jet, and they're not really not designed for it, is any of the gyroscopic maneuvers or any of the negative G maneuvers. So the stuff that we would would do in a Yak 52, we don't do in a jet. Right. They're just they're just not designed. They're not designed for it.
0: It's interesting. Yeah, you you sometimes think that jets can kind of do everything, but
1: yeah, no, it's if you, if you really want to do those sorts of things, you want to be in aeroplanes uh, like Pit Specials, you yeah. know, Christian Eagles, Yak-52s, um, Edge 540s, exo 300s, all those sorts of aeroplanes that are designed for that uh, aerobatic gyroscopic kind of manoeuvres. Jets aren't designed for that
0: at all. Besides flying awesome aircraft, um, you're talking about your day job in the RAAF. What's your day-to-day workings in that job?
1: Uh, so currently, um, I'm at Wagga and I work in the ground Academy and I look after all the training, uh, courses for the, um, training technicians that are coming through. So I review all the training packages. I don't look after the technicians, but I look after the training packages. Um, yeah, air force caught up with me after 27 years of ending operational squadrons and then it's time to wind down and slow down a bit. So <laughs> go have a ground job for a while.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> what did it look like before that? What What were you doing?
1: Um, so, when I joined up, I joined in '93. And from when I did my training at Wagga, I got sent to Ambly and worked on F 111s. And I worked on those for a couple of years. And then um, those
0: are an awesome plane. I love those. They
1: are very cool. Uh, it, it, you know, it's funny, like everyone says, and oh, this plane's great, well, this plane's great. It's a different story when you're working on it. Yeah, so, true. starts really back, not like yeah, it. Yeah, really not like it because when they come back, you know, they're broken. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I was on F-111s and then from there, I went down to, in 97, I went to Adelaide and worked on the P-3 Orion. Cool. Um, and then from... I was on those for a number of years, and then in 2013, I was sent up to but again, and uh, worked on C17 Globemaster for six years.
0: Wow. They're an awesome plane.
1: Yeah, they're good. They're good. And I've pretty much seen the world between the P3s and the C17s. So, yeah, I've pretty much seen the world. So it's it's been a good it's been a good career.
0: What was your favourite plane to work on?
1: I'd probably say I'd probably say the C17. Probably because it's it's newer and everything's computer controlled, and you know it tells you when it's what's wrong with it. Um, you know, if, as avionics, if we have something wrong with it, we can generally be inside the aeroplane out of the weather as well to work on it. Um, yeah, I'd probably say the C-17. I've also seen, seen the world in the C-17. P-3 is really cool because they're old, a bit more nostalgic, a um, bit more of a, you know, Vietnam era, just after Vietnam, I think, or just at the end of Vietnam, they started to come in and they were more of a Cold War kind of submarine, anti-surface, surface unit warfare kind of had a really cool role. Um but then the F-111 as well. So, you know, that was really cool from the 1960s, 70s kind of technology. So it was different. But if I was to go back to one of them, if the other two were still flying, I'd go back to
0: C-17s. They were great. Was it harder to get parts for the older planes and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it was. The F-111s um, are very, even the P-3, are very what we call uh, mandrolic. So they're very labor intensive and they're very... Um, we have to solve the problem with the aeroplane, what we call fault finding. So the C-17 generally does it for you um, because it's all computer controlled, a majority of it's computer controlled, whereas the older aircraft, you have to um, work out why it's doing what it's doing. As for parts, yes, very much so. So when the Americans got rid of their F-11s, they just parked them in the desert. We were continuously going to them and getting parts out of the desert off the ones that they parked there. And we were using those parts to keep the thing going for a while. And in the end, it just became, uh, you know, prohibitively expensive. And um, the airplane got dated. We're more into multi-role function now with the Super Hornets and the uh, JSFs. And um, the same thing happened with the P3 as well. The Americans started to wind those downs and introduced the P8. So, you know, we had to follow suit because there's just not that many flying in the world anymore and you just can't get
0: parts for them. Yeah, that's true. You sort of need that backup service and... You know, yeah, the camaraderie and everyone else having to deal with it as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the other The other thing about it also with parking an airplane is it beca- is interoperability with other countries as well. So the Americans are flying the P eight, <clears throat> excuse me. The British are going to start flying the P eights, and we fly the P eights as well. So if we go somewhere, we know there's a pool of parts at other countries that we can draw from, or we can send our aircrew uh, on exchange programs, and they can come to us we can go to them and then we can, you know, exchange of ideas. So there's those sorts of things as well.
0: You've got the community of, you know, P8 flyers or whatever. So.
1: Yep, P8 flyers, uh, Super Hornet flies, all those sorts of things. Yeah, exactly.
0: Has there been times where you've come across sort of like a problem and you've had to be like, all right, I've got to call the US, maybe they've had this problem and I don't know <laughs> how to fix it?
1: <laughs> um, yes, they have. So at times, um, at 36 Squadron with the C-17s, we have what they're called field service representatives and they um, – some are Australian, some are American, and they sit at 36 Squadron. <clears throat> excuse me, and they um they work for Boeing. And if we have a problem that you know we just cannot resolve, we'll go to them, and then they'll go back to Boeing America, and they will try and sort out the problem with the engineers for us. Yeah, right. It doesn't happen that often, but it, yeah, it, I have experienced. We have had problems like that.
0: Uh, some of the older planes uh, retrofitted with some modern technology, which makes it easier to work on.
1: Um. <sighs> The C-17 is one like that. It's actually been around for a long time. It's been around from the, since the '90s in America. So they had um, the original C-17 had a, had a number of older technologies on board the aircraft. Um, because the airplane's so good, they've updated the technologies and made it more um, more computerized, um, which is and that's the model we've got. So we bought it pretty late, which was really good because we'd done all those updates. But uh, that, that's probably the um, that's the uh, the Hercules as well is probably the oldest airplane we've got in our service at the moment. Maybe a couple of classic Hornets, but the Hercules is an old, air, an old um, style of aircraft from you know the Vietnam War and earlier. Uh, the plane still looks the same, but they've got it's also computerized as well. So Lockheed Martin just saw, yeah, you know, they've got a good product here. Let's just upgrade it, and that's basically what they did.
0: Is that like by wire, or just like computerized in terms of like avionics and?
1: Uh, no, they still have cables uh, and that sort of thing, but um, all the avionics inside the aircraft, uh, the engines are more computer controlled now. But um, like the P3 actually had on the on the thrust levers, actually had through a series of um, switches and cables, it would go out through a series of pulleys to, you know, this pulley to that cable and out to the engine to the fuel control unit. Whereas the c C-17s, um, it's all computerized. So as soon as you move the throttle forward, the computer goes, oh, he's asking for this much um, percentage of thrust. So we'll give him that percentage of thrust. And same with the Herx. Um, yeah, all the modern aircraft
0: work that way. It's pretty cool. You're talking about uh, the aircraft where they're sort of, like even the C-17 where that was sort of from the 90s. Um, it's always funny that sort of time, particularly 80s and 90s when it was like sort of at the cusp of new digital and computer technology. Yeah. So it's like it would have been really like <laughs> state-of-the-art at the time, but it's like cartridges or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're
1: 100% correct. <laughs> Absolutely. So with the F-111, we had um, – when I got to six squadron in 93, Christmas 93 I got there, um, <clears throat> we had the old – what did they call it? It was the INU, Inertial Navigation Unit. And that worked off, uh, you had to set in your Latin long into the aircraft, and then once it, that once it was set and the aircraft started moving, it detected rates of movement, okay? And that's how it kept up its navigation system, just yeah, through right, rates right. of movement, okay? Wow. When they did the AUP, the avionics Update Program, it, they took that old boat anchor out and they put in modern equipment and it became uh, lasering gyros. So then the lasering gyros detected the rates of movement and it became more accurate. mm so he didn't have what they call drift, as what we had through the old system with the old mechanical, you know, synchros and servos, that sort of thing. They would go out of alignment. Um, but yeah, through technology as it changes, now we've got you know, you know, we've got GPS. So now it's super accurate. So things have changed, yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> it's pretty funny um, thinking back. I mean, there's a lot of aircraft that still have a lot of these things. You know, particularly civilian aircraft like GA and stuff. It's like, why yeah. are you using this thing still? It's like <laughs> you know, every car's yeah, almost got GPS these days, and it's like.
1: You're still using your old gyro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you got to adjust your gyro to the compass every 10 minutes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. And you're like, oh, there's friction that you've got to like account for. And, and then yeah. you got to look
1: at the compass card and you've got your variation east and variation west and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're saying.
0: Yeah, me as a student pilot, particularly at the moment, you know, it was like, all right, let's learn performance. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, cool. So, you know, plug it into Avplan or something. No, nah, it's like yep. paper charts with pencil. Yep. I'm like, what? Map to ground. <laughs> map to ground. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we're so behind. Yep. And they're like, can't we just use Oz Runways? I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, copyright 1978 or something, this, this map yep. and this plan and, you know, the, the charts and everything. It's funny.
1: The problem also is with those aircraft is for a civilian company, To upgrade their system is just very expensive. So you can kind of, you know, aviation is expensive as it is. They don't need that overhead as well to make it, to try and modernize it.
0: Totally. It's very expensive for them. Particularly when a lot of people already know how to do that stuff anyway. So Mm. it's it's like, you know, maybe if we had a whole new swath of pilots coming out who are like super young and keen and eager and then more people buying planes but you know even purchasing planes is expensive these days and yeah it's not yep. really happening so there's no incentive i don't think
1: no it's yeah, it has dropped off a lot i think but that but it may also be because it's so expensive as well mm. so you got your expensive hiring or a plane or with an instructor and then you have to pay for the fuel and then you have to pay for the hang if you own one then you have to pay for the hangarage and landing fees insurance it all adds up and then the maintenance costs on top of that as well it, it does add up
0: totally so A pretty cool thing that you've been doing with the L-39, which uh, I didn't even know was a possibility until recently, (laughs) (laughs) was air racing.
1: Yeah. So um, in 2018, um, friends of ours that own the aircraft up at Bathurst and a company called Fastjet. um, And he's in the business of taking people up on rides, And that's where I I, um, go to fly sometimes as well. And also keep myself current up there. But um, he owns two jets up at Bathurst, an L29 and L39. He also owns one of each in the States as well. And he has been doing the air racing for the past, uh, past five or six years. Wow. But um, they got married in 2018 and invited us over for their wedding. They got married at the track at Reno. So um, I always wanted to go there, so we went over. And um, I actually worked as a crew chief on his uh, on his l 29 who was being piloted by uh, an F-16 pilot, um, which he, he does in his spare time, flies CV jets as well. Anyway, when we came back, uh, my wife said, what are you doing with your flying? You know, where do you want to go now? And I said, well, I'd actually like to have a crack at that racing. So one thing led to another and um, filled out all the paperwork and uh, got talking to Charlie. And uh, in June I went, last year, I went over and did the um, Pylon Racing School called PRS. Uh and that's where they teach you, or you learn about formation flying, or the art of formation flying. But it's it's ideal if you already can already do formation flying, which I can, already had form endorsement. Um, so they teach you flying in close with other aircraft and other aircraft around you, and you have to fly what they call safe and predictable. You can't you can't be loose or can't be wandering around in your formation flying. You have to be rock solid, uh, and they teach you emergencies as well, and that's all done before you get down or you go through emergencies, I should say, and that's all done before you're allowed to enter the track. So once you pass that part, that's the first three days, three or four days, once you pass that part, you then go um, and learn to fly the track. So this is all done out of Stead Airport in Reno, Nevada, which is about 20 20 nautical miles um, out of actually Reno itself. So once you pass what they call fast, formation and safety training, they then let you go onto the track with an instructor in the back. So we learn how to, uh, we all formate up again, go around what they call Mount Peavine, which is a mountain in, uh, near the airport, and then we fly down what they call the chute. And you fly down the chute and you aim for pylon number four. So you're all in what they call extended line. So you can have up to eight jets on the course and you're paced by a pace plane. So once that pace plane calls you up, what they call the line, all the jets are wingtip to wingtip and you're flying in formation, they will say, um, call you forward or tell you to slow down or whatever. So they try and keep the line as straight as they can. Once they're happy, they'll then release you and then you'll steam straight ahead, what they call it within your swim lane. So you, don't, you can't wander left or right because there's other aircraft. You just look straight ahead. And then when you get to pile and four, you start your turn. But because you're all in line, when you turn, your radius of turn now is greater than the, than the uh, aircraft most close to the turn, right? So because you're all doing the same speed as well, when you turn and the, with the radius of turn that's greater, you need to travel a greater distance to stay where you are in line with that aircraft that's closer, but you're not going at a different speed. You're all going at the same speed. So that sets up your stagger around the course. And then it's up to you through leading and lagging with your nose on the aircraft in front of you to try and either catch up or slow down. Uh, and they teach you all that stuff on the course and they teach you uh, emergencies on the course as well. So we fly around between 50 and 250 feet, um, anywhere from 400 to, you know, 500 plus miles an hour uh, and they'll be, t- they'll be um, giving you emergencies as well. So as you're flying around, sh- you just get comfortable with the course. Um, and then once they can see you're comfortable and safe on the course, uh, they'll give you emergencies. The instructor will just pull the power off the engine and what they call an SFO, single uh, – sorry, a simulated flame out. And then you have to convert speed to height, assess um, what's going on with your aircraft, and set yourself up to come in for you know an emergency landing. It's all part of the training. You don't actually land, you put the power back on, go up, Go up the top, up to what they call um, the queue. Um, make Look yeah. make sure everything's okay. Radio your intentions that you're going to come back on the course and then you can come back down and continue the training. So once you've done that, uh, then they teach you to pass. So you learn to pass someone and, and how to do it safely because it, it, you know, it can be quite, quite dangerous if you get close to another aircraft. I
0: just wanted to interrupt here and say you're racing with people in the circuit. Yeah, yeah.
1: So it's like imagine um, what's, the best, what's, what's the best analogy? Imagine NASCAR. 50 yeah. feet off the ground at 500 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and there's eight (laughs) other people and not all the jets are the same either so some are faster some are slower (laughs) so you may come up to the last guy so
0: yeah well (laughs) yeah
1: you have to have um you have to have good situational awareness oh yeah about yourself and uh, other aircrafts
0: because yeah i was just sort of imagining it as the like red bull air race thing where you're you're doing the timed laps
1: yeah no so they have one aircraft on the circuit as you know yeah and they fly between the pylons so having two aircraft on the circuit for them would be a bit dangerous because they're changing directions as well yeah that's true with the Reno stuff, we only turn left. So it's fly fly fast, fly low, turn left. Because we're all doing that, you can have up to eight aircraft on the track.
0: It's still pretty, it's still pretty <laughs> insane. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, that's good fun. It's intense. It, it is intense. We only, it, the track is 8.1 miles long, which is around about 13 kilometers, and we do six laps. So that six laps is – it's pretty
0: intense. Pretty, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a flat stick the entire time, eh? Yeah,
1: oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. The, the thrust yeah. levers, you know, 100% the whole way or 100 and, 100 and whatever you can get out of the engine on the day, 103% the whole time.
0: That's crazy. So, sorry, I interrupted the process of the training just to tell you how amazed I was at the fact that there's lots of aircraft in the circuit yeah. <laughs> at
1: once. It, it, does, it does sound yeah. a bit daunting. But um, so, yeah, once you've done the training, um, then you do, uh, they let you off on your own. So the last flight will be you and the other students with no instructors in the jet. So you guys are off. They they can see that you're safe. They're happy with how you're flying and they're happy with how you fly the circuit. So they will let you go on your own and you fly that, come down and then that's your last flight. They'll tick you off and award you your race license. Once you've done the training, um, you don't have to race in September. Races are held in September. You don't have to do it, but um, uh, I did. So once you've done that, then I applied to um, actually race, and I did the course in an L thirty nine Albatross, but I raced the L twenty nine Delphin. So the boss, the guy who lives in um, Bathurst, he owns both those aircraft. But because he's a race pilot, he wanted to race his L thirty nine. So I used the L twenty nine, which is fine. Which is still a lot of fun. Um, and the race racing was just awesome. It was the quickest week time wise that i've ever done so the moment i started out of the 10 races i did eight and i gave a friend of mine two races so he used the jet twice um and when it was finished it was like where did that week go that was just awesome yeah wow, (laughs) a lot of
0: fun (laughs) so how many people are qualified to do this and like how many people went through training
1: um when you do the training so there's six classes in reno air racing there's the formula one class the biplanes the sport T6, Jet and Unlimited. So when you do the training, all those classes come and each class has its own, excuse me, number of people uh, to train or number of people who want to do it. So I don't know how many other people uh, of the other classes there were, but on my course there was probably about, I think there was eight of us, eight or nine of us, but not all of us, not all of everybody came back and raced that year either. So some people did it and said, oh, great. I've done that now. I'm going to, I'm going to come back in two years time and, and race. But, um, I think there was only one or two of you guys that did that for whatever reason. But yeah, so uh, most of us raced, uh, and then you've got other aircraft that are you know, current guys as well. So presently I think I'm one of less than 40, um, jet pilots, that actually race, there's probably even less than that. Um, there's more people the the general saying is there's more people qualified to go into space than there is to race at reno yeah it's it's a it's a small it's a small group of um race pilots but you know a lot of people oh sorry excuse me i don't do it for um the competitive street i do it for the for the fun of it and you know the gratification of being involved and and just that week is just amazing
0: yeah sounds insane
1: (laughs) a whole lot of fun
0: (laughs) So once you get that sort of training and that race license, how long does that last for? Do you have to like you, you know get as many races in as possible in the allotted years that's valid for? Or?
1: Um, yes and no. So it's only la- it's only qual- it's only current. Sorry, for two years. So if you um, if you do. PRS in June, or you race in September of one year. You can skip the next year and then race the following year. Oh, yeah, cool. So three years, three years including the first race that you did, or it's two years if you skip a year. Then you have to come back that next year and either do um, do the PRS, so fly the circuit and that qualifies you again, or or you get certified again, or you come and race and race week, and they'll certify you at the start of that week.
0: Yeah, it seems like a lot of work and uh, you know, and, and brain power to you know commit yourself to a couple of years you kind of want to you know use it as much as possible i think
1: yeah yeah you do um it is it, there is a lot of things to think about but the, you know the funny thing is that when you're there you're not allowed to do anything with the airplane as a pilot all you're allowed to do is brief and fly and that's it because your brain is taken up with those tasks and it's pretty dangerous you know 500 miles an hour for 50 feet off the ground you're thinking about all these other things going on in your head you don't want to have to be thinking about you know, oh, I've got to put this much fuel in it for the next race. I've got to, I've just got to check such and such. So you have a crew chief. So you can't race without a crew chief. You have to have a crew chief because you rely on them to do everything, um, you know, to look after the aeroplane, you know, clean the aeroplane for you, get the aeroplane prepped in the morning, you know, pull the bungs or put the bungs back in, uh, refuel the aeroplane. Um, the canopy uh, pressurisation system uh, uses nitrogen. So you rely on them to have the nitrogen system charged. So there's all these little things um, that they worry about that you don't have to.
0: Do you select your own crew chief?
1: Yes, you do. Yeah, so my crew chief is actually my wife. So she's an avionics technician in the Air Force as well. So awesome. um, she, she's she been around airplanes the same amount of time as I have. So <clears throat> she does all the work for me.
0: Is she like next time I'm racing and you're crew chief? <laughs> no, she's not a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It works well for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No, no uh, taking in turns. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um when is it it's meant to be september this year well it's now september so it's unfortunately not happening but you're there last year do you plan to go back next year
1: yeah for sure so um yeah you're right correct uh, last year i went did my first race so second in bronze and fifth in silver so i was pretty happy with those results Yeah, congrats. um was planning to go this year covid hit us we can't go there so um planning's underway not just for myself but for all the teams um and the reno air race organization as well they're, they're planning for 2021 so it should be a good you know, rest period and we'll kick off again next year.
0: Yeah, awesome. Um, it sounds to me like you went from not having done an air race before into jets or did you do piston air racing prior?
1: No, no. So I've never raced before in my life. Never done it before <laughs> at all. Yeah, right. Never. So um, I've, got, um, yeah, I've got a fair bit of what I'd consider a fair bit of time in the jets, in the civil world, in the civilian world. So, yeah. um, so uh, Charlie, who owns the jets, um i didn't i don't know anyone over there who actually is from australia i I know guys are now i do now i do because i've met them last year but at the time before last year i didn't know anyone over there who owned piston engine airplanes and generally those guys have only got one each anyway so they didn't have a spare one but charlie's got two so he was happy to um let me hire his other one where he flew his primary jet so it worked out well for me
0: that's cool yeah so you didn't have to ferry them across which is also handy
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. (laughs) That would have been pretty intense. (laughs) some people do. Some people do. There's a guy in New Zealand. that uh, He ferries his – he's got a Yak, which is a World War II Russian fighter, and he ferries it across. Yeah, wow. And does the
0: racing. But
1: um, no, uh, Charlie's lives there. Yeah, cool. Lives over there at the airport.
0: Makes it a lot easier.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. So he will go over in June, not this year, but he generally goes over in June and does the servicings on the aircraft because they have to have annual servicings. And then um, and then fly them uh, on PRS week, so they're being you know, used and moved, uh, and then park them again. And then we'll go back in September and fly them, race them. It's
0: pretty awesome. For people who kind of want to get into the sort of air racing world, um, there's different categories, and you don't need to be flying you know L29s and L39s. <laughs>
1: no, there are different ca- there are different categories. Like I said, there's six different classes. <clears throat> so there's three different heats so there's um bronze silver and gold uh and depending on how fast your jet oh, sorry your aircraft goes depends what heat you're going with your um, absc right so uh, gold silver and bronze there's six different classes of aircraft so there's formula one uh, and they're only small they're tiny little airplanes um i don't really know how to describe imagine um imagine if mickey mouse had an airplane that that's what they're like They're that is <laughs> tiny little things with constant speed, pro- uh, sorry, um, fixed pitch props. You can't change the blade angle or anything like that. And they fly, they race around a circuit of only three miles. It's very small. Um, then there's the uh, biplane class, like the pit specials and the Christian Eagles. That's another class. Um, then there's the sports class and they're generally your Lance Airs, your glasses, uh, and aircraft like that. So they're much faster. Um, the T6 class, which is your you know, T6 Texans, the old World War II trainer. That's a class on its own. So they race those. Um, and then after that, they've got the jet class, which is what I race in. And then there's the ultimates, what they call the Unlimiteds. And they're the P-51s, you, you know, your Mustangs, your um, Cobra was there last year, Super Cobra last year. Um, what else is there? Um, Seafury. Seafuries, those types of airplanes. But if if people wanted to get into it, the, the biggest hurdle is um, – obviously having a pilot's license and that sort of thing. But the biggest biggest hurdle for a lot of people is getting access to an airplane. So I was fortunate that Charlie's got two. So I was very lucky that you know, I could hire the other aircraft and do it. But most people only have one in their team, one aircraft in their team. So that's the biggest hurdle, either buy an aircraft and enter it or trying to get in with the team and hopefully they'll, they'll let you do it.
0: It's true. So I guess it's a lot of research and a lot of networking to get into it.
1: it. It is It is a lot of networking. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of networking.
0: In the jet class, were they all sort of similar-ish jets or were there some crazy, someone's got a privately owned uh, F-16 or something? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, no, so we're bound by law, uh, our rules. So we, we can't have afterburning engines okay. and we can't have a wing sweep. Now, I can't remember what it is, whether it's 15 degrees or 35. I'd like to say it's 15. You can't have a wing suite greater than 15 degrees. I think that's what it is. But, um, yeah, so you can't have aircraft like that. So the main aircraft that we see, uh, there's a plane called a Fuga Magister. <clears throat> there wasn't one of those racing last year, but one turned up at the airfield. Um, the A37 Dragonfly, they can race. The L- L29 Dolphin can race. Uh, S211 McKetty can race. Uh, and the L39 Albatross Um and also last year we had a Vampire as well because they're not after burning. Um, they're single engine and they've got you know, straight wings. And that's a, uh, what is that, 1950s, 1940s, 50s aeroplane?
0: Yeah, it's crazy.
1: So one of those came out and r- he raced in the gold class. He's very, very fast.
0: So no, no um, uh, Tomcats and the f one no. elevens coming in like this <laughs> and, then, no. and then the race starts and they're sweeping the wings back? <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. I'm not too sure if plane was
1: going that fast, they would make the circuit, actually. It's pretty yeah. you know,
0: yeah, it's pretty tight. At
1: uh, eight miles, it, it, it can be pretty tight. So, it, yeah, they've all got... If they, the faster you go, the greater your turn radius. So it would be quite a lot of pressure on the pilot. Yeah,
0: that's <laughs> true. <laughs> it would be like holding on to one of those merry-go-rounds and you're going Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Trying to I hold F- on tighter. I think an F-16 or an F-18 would um, do pretty well on the course. But... Um, yeah, I think they'll do okay.
0: <laughs> cool. So, what's been your most memorable flight so far? Um, I was talking to Deborah Laurie uh, last week, and she's like, "Well, there's memorable in terms of you know scenery, and also memorable in terms of nail biting."
1: Yeah, um, yeah. So, probably winning it or oh, coming second in the in the um, jet class at Reno was pretty cool. That was um, that's pretty much most memorable. <coughs> excuse me, the most memorable flight. But so that'd be the most elating flight, I guess you could say. But the most um, nail-biting flight was when I um took a passenger up in a Nangcheng, uh, and I couldn't get the wheels down.
0: Oh no! So yeah,
1: <laughs> so I went through the normal checklist and the wheels wouldn't come down. So then I went through you know the boldface checklist and the emergencies and the wheels wouldn't come down. I could get the mains down, I couldn't get the nose wheel down. So it was make a decision. I had a passenger in the back who was he wasn't a pilot, he was just going on a joyride, coming up for an adventure flight. So I had his. No, his safety to worry about, my safety to worry about, uh, the aircraft, um, how I was going to land. Now, this was down in Adelaide at Parafield. Um, had a howling crosswind directly across the runway. Oh, no.
0: So um, – And he's like, this is a part of the experience, isn't it? This is right. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. So, all that, um, once I realized the wheels weren't going to come down or the nose wheel wasn't going to come down, then I had to make a decision. Do I land on the mains and hold the nose off? Um or do I sacrifice the flaps on the Nang Chang? The flaps is one piece of flat metal going from you know, left side to the right side of the airplane. Uh, and the nose wheel on the Nang Chang doesn't retract all the way. So the, it sticks out a little bit. Half, like halfway, the nose wheel will stick out halfway. so And it's free spinning. So I thought, if I can land flat like a glider, which I've never, ever done in my life, if I can land flat like a glider, then you know, perhaps uh, I can minimize the damage and the wingtips won't hit because if the wingtips hit you, then you've got that risk it's of drag. dragging yeah. the wing and flicking you around. So these are all things going through in my mind. And, um, I was briefing the passenger saying, you yeah, know, this is what the problem is. This is, um, this isn't working. This isn't working. Okay. This is what my plan is. This is what I think will happen as I've not done this before kind of thing. So now I gave him a safety brief, you know, that sort of stuff. I kept him in the loop and, um, he managed to, managed to land the aircraft on the runway and it all worked out well. Uh, minimize the damage and uh, he said to me later on he said you crash better than a lot of pilots that I know actually land normally so um, <laughs> I said well if you're still happy I've got another Nang Chang we can go flying the next weekend and take you out and he goes yeah right yeah we'll do that <laughs> which we did
0: yeah he's like better have a stern warning to your lamey beforehand and make sure <laughs> you yeah. like, sorted that aircraft out yeah, yeah. No, that
1: one worked out fine <laughs>
0: yeah that's good i also like to finish with this question. Uh, What would your dream flight you could take just for fun be?
1: Yeah, to be honest with you, I honestly don't know. Um, I think the the dream flight for me will be winning the gold, uh, in the gold gold, uh, heat uh, at Reno in a fast jet. But um, unfortunately, like I said, I don't have access to one of those. (laughs) Um, So I'm I'm happy with, you know, coming up close to the front in bronze and you know, participating in the silver. So I'm more than happy with that. But winning the gold in the um, at Reno would be the ultimate experience for me. Do you
0: reckon it's doable in, say, like the L39 and you have to do the paper-scissors rock with your mate to try and get it <laughs> next time? Or?
1: Yeah, no, no, it doesn't work that way <laughs> over there. <laughs> no, they're very particular about their aircraft and you
0: know, it's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the funny thing is that like, most... most um, <clears throat> Most pilots over there all have uh, some form um, of a military background behind them, um, whereas, you know, us, the Australian guys here, For a friend of mine, Lockie Onslow from Armadale, he flies helicopters and owns Fleet Warbirds. Um, Charlie Camilleri owns Pan Air and Fast Jet, and, you know, and I'm not even the jet pilot in the Air Force. I'm a technician by trade. So if, for what we do as Australians going over there just to compete and be a part of the event, I think we do pretty well. Yeah, awesome. Locky Ra- races in the uh, in the silver class because the jet that he flies is just fast enough to do it. So, uh, and I think he he actually won the silver class last year. He won the the first place trophy. So um, yeah, he's just lucky to fly that aircraft. But um, yeah,
0: that's cool. I think so. Maybe you can use your technician skills to find the wire that everyone would find <laughs> hardest uh, to discover uh, what the problem is. I
1: think the uh, I think the biggest thing is getting a bigger engine in it, <laughs> a that's, lot that's, faster engine.
0: That's true. Yeah. So not disabling everyone else's aircraft. <laughs>
1: uh, you know,
0: <laughs> and the only participant and winner.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, no, I don't like to do that. I like to win on my merits. I don't like yeah, to disadvantage true. other people. So they say um, the way I see it is. Um, aggressive tactics against aggressive flying if you fly aggressive you're going to become dangerous yeah and unpredictable and that's when accidents happen but you know if you have aggressive tactics you know that can that can edge someone out so the way i came second last year is down in the chute on the last race in the in the actual um the race for the trophy i was bringing throughout the week i was bringing the thrust leader back to about 95 percent, 96 and just hovering around that that area to hold myself in formation but i thought well why not leave the thrust lever up around 98 to 100 and feather my speed using the speed brakes? So that way the engine doesn't have to spool up and then produce that you know that last um, 4 or 5% of thrust. And that worked out well. It just gave me an extra bit once I popped the speed brakes in. You know, the jet's always already trying to leap forward anyway. Once I popped the speed brakes in, it leapt forward and it was just enough to get in front of the guy on my left. So once I turned left, I was in front of him. So aggressive tactics as opposed to aggressive flying.
0: That's true, yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on and uh, chatting to us about the amazing uh, jet racing and um, yeah, your career so far and flying warbirds. It sounds pretty amazing and exciting. So,
1: Not a problem. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I don't know about you, but I really, really, really want to race jets now. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of Up and Away. Don't forget to subscribe as well as follow us on Instagram and Facebook. See you next week.